Amen. So before I ask you to rise and read scripture this morning, I want to have us recall a little bit of last week and, and where we ended our time there. And the way that um, things are read, if you're reading a story, it usually means you go from one chapter to the next chapter to the next. You go from one section of the story to the next section of the story, and it seems to flow and it makes sense. So too, we read a letter like the letter of James. And so in order to better understand chapter five, we have to go back a little bit and remember where we were in chapter 4. And if you remember last week, what we talked about was this idea and this understanding that the Lord wills all things. And especially as we make plans for the future and when we talk about, I'm going to go to this town, I'm going to make this much money, I'm going to do all, if you remember that text from last week. And so as we enter into chapter 5, we need to have the end of chapter 4 kind of ringing in the back of our brains and understanding that James is making this argument all the way through. So we have the Lord's will that is the thread that goes through all of this, and then he enters into the next treatise to a warning to the rich. So if you're able, please rise as we read the next section of God's word from James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Hear the reading of God's word. Come now, you rich... Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, even for texts like this, we give you great thanks. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would carry my words to those gathered here. That our hearts would be softened to your goodness and your mercy that we would be emboldened by truth and righteousness and holiness. So go before us, we pray. Guide us, mold us, make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So I entitled this message today, I entitled it Pearls, Pathways, and Providence. And hopefully you'll begin to see where those three things collide together. And in order to begin that process, I want to tell you a story. And it probably won't take you very long to understand or to remember the story, but it's a story that's a really great story. Perhaps one of the greatest stories ever told about the dangers of wealth and the pursuit of wealth. So I'm going to do a little bit of reading, a little bit of summarizing, and then we'll enter into diving into James chapter 5. But I want to just have you hear this story once again, and I'll clue you in at the end if you haven't figured it out pretty quickly. Um, you may have to go back to your junior high days or your high school days, but I, th I think you'll remember. So Kino, Juana, and their infant son, Coyotito, lived in a modest brush house by the sea. One morning, however, tragedy struck their wonderful little home on the edge of the ocean, and the little boy, Coyotito, was stung by a scorpion. Obviously, mother and father were in much uh, trauma, and they were trying to figure out everything they could do, so they picked up their son, and they, they rushed to the doctor. They got to the doctor's office, and the doctor says, I cannot help you because I know you're poor, and you do not have the money to pay me. They were devastated. So they go back later that morning, back to their home, and 
Kino goes back to what he knows. He puts his wife and his baby into the canoe and they go out into the sea and Kino is a fisherman and a pearl diver and he dives into the ocean to search for treasures again to make a living because he has nothing more he can do. And while he's down in the ocean, Juana, his wife, is praying, praying desperately that he would find this wonderful pearl, a pearl that was bigger and better than every pearl ever. And then Kino rises from the ocean with that very pearl in his hand. And they are overjoyed about their good fortune. And people from all around the village began to see that Kino had found the very thing that everyone was always searching for, this pearl of great price. And then toward the evening, the priests come to bless their good fortune. And the doctor miraculously appears back again. And it's like, I can help you now. And Kino begins to say, I will pay you once I sell this pearl, and he glances over into the corner where he has buried the pearl, and the doctor takes particular notice. Kino recognizes this, and then sometime later that day, Kino unburies the pearl that he had dug and puts it under his, his sleeping mat, and sometime in the night, he hears this ruckus in the corner and begins to hear someone digging in the corner of the hut where he had originally buried the pearl, and Kino rises from his sleep and begins to beat the man, and he beats the man to death. But in the meantime, Coyotito begins to get more and more ill, more and more sick. And the days get longer and harder. And the next night, Juana, the wife, is beginning to understand that this pearl may be more than what they bargained for. And she wakes up and finds the pearl, and she was going to go hurl it into the ocean. But as she's rising from her sleep... Kino notices what she's doing, and he does the same thing. He rises up and he tackles her just before she's throwing the pearl into the ocean, and she's standing on the beach, and Kino beats his wife and leaves her on the shore. And as he's returning back to the, 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 uh, the place where they called home, he notices that his house is on fire and is burned to the ground. Luckily, the boy was not in the house. And Juana returns and sees that the pearl had been dropped in the path, and she gives the pearl back to her husband, and they determine that they're going to go and try to sell this pearl once again. And the next day, they go on to the journey to sell the pearl, but they notice that there's people following them. And they go on this journey, and these people keep following them and keep following them. And nightfall came again, and it turns out that these followers were trying to kill them for their pearl. And in the scuffle, there was a gunshot that rang out. Kino got up and once again fought off the people that were following them trying to steal the pearl. After he had fought them off and the marauders had vanished, he returned back to where they were staying and came to the tragedy that the gunshot that rang out had struck his son and killed him. In that moment, Kino took the pearl, walked to the beach, threw it in the ocean. Where are our treasures? John Steinbeck, the pearl, 
tells us this great story and this short story that many of you probably know well, and, or at least you've had to walk back through with your students over the years. But a good story about our hearts and about our motivations and, and what we're searching after and what we're pining after, and especially we as Americans. It's what we think about. It's what we dream about. It's what we want. We want more money. We want more power. We want more control because we have to keep up with the neighbors. We have to keep up with all of these things. But as we enter into James 5, I want you to hear that money inherently is not the problem. You can be wealthy and you can seek after God. You can be wealthy and be generous and be kind and gracious and not have it consume you. But the message here is for those of us who are consumed by power and money and control and these things of life. And so then I want to go down a path with us. Three paths as we enter in to James chapter 5. And ask the question, where or what is our pearl? What are you longing for? What are you seeking after? And then to examine what James is talking about on these three pathways in this very difficult text, this very heart-wrenching text to, to many of us. But I want us to hear that wealth comes from God. We can be wealthy and godly at the same time. It is possible. The wealth, however, that we're given is to provide for our needs and to bless others. So keep in mind those ideas as we enter into the pathways that we find in James chapter 5. The first pathway of wealth, or the first pathway that we are going to walk down, is one that leads to sorrow, a pathway to sorrow. If our heart and our ambition, our motivation is just more, more, more all the time, as James is talking about here in chapter 5, then the first pathway that we lead to is a pathway of sorrow. But before we embark on this pathway, I want us to, to just to deal with the reality of what's happening here this morning, of, of our own hearts and our own lives, and we're saying, well, this seems like it's a message for the, for the really rich, for the really wealthy, the people that are business owners and the people that have land and people that, that are able to have employees. And Well, that's, that's not most of us in here. That's some of us in here, but that's not most of us. Most of us are middle-class Americans that, that aren't overly wealthy. I want to throw something out for you this morning, just to give us some perspective in, in, the, in the global environment of wealth. So I looked up some very, I don't know, obtuse, large statistics, and whether or not they're exactly accurate, I don't know, but these are the ones I came across. The gross national product of, of the world is, just take a guess in your own mind, what do, you, what do you think the gross national product per capita, meaning per household, in the world is? I'm not asking you to raise your hands, but just think in your minds. What do you think the, the, the annual household income of a, of a home in the world is? It's a little bit surprising. I actually thought it would be a little bit lower than I came across. $16,000 and some change. That's the, that's the average global housely income. Now, I don't know if those figures are entirely accurate or not. I'm not sure. We're just going to go with them for right now for the sake of illustration. Now just take a gander and take a guess at what you think it is in the United States. So 16,000 and some change is the global average per family. In the United States, 69,000. 
So if we ask ourselves and we say to ourselves, well, I'm really not that wealthy. Well, yes, we really are. We're far more wealthy than the rest of the world by leaps and bounds. It's not even close. We have houses. We have air conditioning. We have heat. We have food. We have clothes. Multiple pairs of shoes. And so when we come to James chapter 5, it's not a message for just the landowner, for the company owner. It's for us. And the dangers of wealth and the dangers of pursuing wealth for the sake of the pursuit of wealth. So the first path that we go down in this dangerous path is one that could lead to sorrow. So we look at verse 1 here in James chapter 5. What does it say? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. There's other translations that don't say come now, but they say look here. Look here, you rich. Look here, and that look here is really just that. It's like, hey, heads up, look over here. You need to pay attention now. A big, bold, flashing neon sign that says, look, pay attention. Hear what I'm saying to you right now, you who are rich us who live in the United States of America who have a very large wealth. Pay attention. Pay attention to what's happening. And here he does actually say, rich people, as we will see as we move forward, this is to all of us and our temptations and in what we are seeking after. So pay attention. Pay attention to what God is saying to all of us this morning. And I want to do some lang- a little bit of language study with you here this morning because I think it's fascinating and interesting to this story in James chapter 5. So James says, look here, you rich people, and what does he say to do? He says to weep and to groan. So the word weep in the original language means to sob out loud. Not a little dad cry or a little emotional tick but to weep and to sob out loud, to lament. This word was used to describe the wailing that took place when someone died in Mark 5 and Luke 7 and John 11, 20 and Acts 9. This is the kind of weeping when we're approaching to death, that kind of weeping. When someone you love has passed away, we weep out loud. There's a phrase in our... in our world today, that there's an ugly cry. You heard that phrase? I'm, I'm, I'm about ready to have an ugly cry. Not one that's nice and pretty and tame. This weep is to have an ugly cry. It's also depicted in the outward reactions that sometimes accompanying intense shame and guilt as we see in Matthew 26 and Luke 7. So there's death and guilt and shame. This is the word Weep. And then he says groan. And groan goes beyond even lamenting and all these things. It refers to shrieking or, or, or screaming. And so taking together, we sob out loud and we shriek. This is what he's saying that we as rich people ought to do. Why? Why do we cry and why do we shriek? James tells us the answer. Because of the terrible troubles that lie ahead of us, 
These terrible trials refer to hardships and sufferings and distress. The idea then is that the rich people, or you and I, often live as if there is no God. And if there is no God in our lives, then the ultimate path is that of sorrow and death and of shrieking and wailing. In our pursuit of wealth, in our pursuit of money and finance and power and security, how often do we forget about God? I have to have X amount of dollars in my savings account, otherwise God's not faithful to me. We have to have an X amount of money in the bank for a church, otherwise God's not faithful to us. All of these things, our families, our church, our workplaces, our companies, wherever it is, what is our pursuit of wealth and money and power and where is our security lie? And this is the warning. Is that we put our hope and we put our treasure in money so that we can be secure, so that we can have hope, so that we can know tomorrow is going to be okay. But that only leads to sorrow and weeping and shrieking. You see, this is the warning. If we say that our pursuit of wealth and our pursuit of this type of security is our motivation, is our heart, is our idol, then the only thing it leads to is sorrow. Because we put that above the Lord our God and we will die apart from Jesus. This is really what the pathway of pursuit of wealth leads to is deep sorrow. The second pathway that the pursuit of money could lead us down is that of spiritual short-sightedness. So if we don't go down the path of sorrow, it could potentially lead us down the pathway of spiritual short-sightedness. Meaning, what does that look like for us? Look at verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be, listen to this, their corrosion will be evidence against you, and you will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So what is that talking about? What, what is that? So here it is. We're, we're pursuing this richness. We're pursuing this money as our God and as our idol. And then he says not only that, but the warning further is that it's actually a hoarding of things. We're selfishly gathering up this money and these treasures, and that's our God. And that's what we live for, that's what we work for, that's what we aspire to be. But hear me say this. God wants us to be responsible. Money is not inherently evil. God wants us to be responsible financially. He wants us to be able to pay our bills. He wants us to be good citizens. He wants us to be all of these things, but not to the point of selfishly gathering up wealth. So God will entrust us with many things. And he will give us a certain amount of wealth. For what purpose? So that we can use it for his glory. And so part of that, if we, looked, if we were to look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, that would be, yes, we need to provide for our family. If we look at 1 Chronicles and Mark 12, and it's also used to advance God's kingdom. These are good things that the Lord gives us money for. 
in Luke 16, it says that believers are to use their wealth to win the lost. In 1 John 3 and in Galatians 2, it's supposed to be used to care for those who are in need. And in 1 Corinthians 9 and Galatians 6, it's supposed to be used to care for those in ministry. In other words, what can we say about that? Those who claim to be followers of Jesus are not to build a fortune that is useful just to stash stuff away for a rainy day and to, and to rely on that as our security and that's our hope and that's how tomorrow's going to be okay. But actually, we're supposed to use it for God's will. You see, here in James chapter 5, he's actually condemning this idea of, of hoarding and selfishly building wealth. James described these three types of wealth then that we need to be wary of that could lead us to this spiritual short-sightedness. He talks about three kinds of wealth as we walk through this text here. The first one that he uses for wealth is something that rots away. Well, in that day, put yourself in first century Christendom, and what's going to rot away? Things that you want to store up, things that you want to hoard, what, what might that be? Let's call it cucumbers. Let's call it tomatoes. Let's call it potatoes. Whatever the food may be. You see, because there was this sense in that time in which the more food you had meant the more wealth you had. The larger you were, which is opposite of our society, right? Means is that if you could afford food, then you could afford to eat food. And so they would hoard food and hoard food and hoard food to the point where it would just sit in their storage areas and it would rot away. This is what he's talking about, just like rotten wood or decayed flesh and rotten fruit. James is saying, this is your pursuit of wealth. All it does is rot away. The second kind that he talks about is clothing. That is moth-eaten rags. During biblical times, wealth was also measured by clothing, just as it is in our day and age, right? These fine clothes refer to outer garments, such as their robes or their mantles or their cloaks. Often the rich would embroider and embellish these cloaks, these robes with jewels and other fine things, and they would buy more and more and more and more. I wonder if we look into our closets, into my own closet, what does that look like? Hoarding them was foolish and useless as hoarding food because clothing in that day, the moths would just come and eat them all anyway. So what is the point? And then the third kind that he is warning against is actual gold and silver. But if you do some historical studies, the gold and silver of that day was not pure gold and was not pure silver. In the same sense that it is for us today, it was often filled with other kinds of metals. And as you had this coin in your pocket or wherever for some time, the rust of the other metals would begin to corrode and it would take over the gold and the silver. And then the coin would be worth even less. So he says, James says even further that the very things, the very wealth you were counting on, the very things that you were hoping for will rot away, will get eaten by moths, as a rusty piece of junk that's worthless. 
This is the warning. This is a picture of massive waste, of lavish possessions just left to rot. So James shows us that the pursuit of wealth for its own sake is very short-sighted. And as a matter of fact, in those last days when we have these piles of rotten food and moth-eaten clothes and rusty piles of coins, and we stand before the judgment of the Lord God Almighty, they're actually evidence against us. That's a really hard pill to swallow for me. And I think for many of us. It's a hard pill to swallow because that's what we're after. That's what we think is going to make us who we are. That's going to make us have this wonderful identity. It's going to make us powerful. It's going to make us respected. It's going to make us secure. It's going to make us all of these things. And actually, James says, no, it's evidence against you that you weren't using those things to glorify God or to advance his kingdom. And that's a hard pill to swallow. So where is your motivation? What is your pearl? What pathway are you walking down? Is it a pathway that leads to sorrow? Is it a pathway that leads to short-sightedness? James shows us the folly of our pursuit of wealth. And what is wasted is evidence against us. But again, hear me say, saving is not ungodly, it's not immoral, it's not wrong, and neither is providing for ourselves or our family in that sense, but wealth is to be used for a purpose. And that's to glorify God. The third path that we could potentially go down as we seek to pursue this thing called wealth and security and power and all these things is it's a pathway that could lead to many sins. And James mentions at least three of those sins. When it came to wealth, what James is talking about here is that it's how they have acquired it. And this is where the sin pattern begins to rear its head. Instead of being generous to the poor, as Scripture commands, he's saying they exploited and cheated the poor. How did they do that? These field workers, and even if you were to go around our town today, you could, you could drive up and down Cooper and you could find similar types of workers. And you could hire them for a day wage if you would like. I know many who have done that. At the end of the day, these field workers expected to be paid their wage that they have agreed upon. And what James is saying is, no, you haven't done that. Maybe you've paid them some, but not their wage. And perhaps you haven't paid them at all. So they've cheated the people that they've hired. And they've misused the things that the Lord has provided them. And so when they cry out to God for help, and God sees this unjust and unfair use of the poor, it's actually an act of war against the Lord God Almighty. Therefore, the Lord of heaven's armies respond to this cry for help. So what are these sins? It's, it's, it's all too easy for the, for, the, for the wealthy to overlook the needs of others. It's all too easy for us to overlook the needs of others. And so this pursuit of wealth can then lead to a few different things. The first sin that it could lead us down is that it's selfishly spent. Their wealth was selfishly spent. So look at James 5, verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. 
James is not saying that we cannot enjoy the good things of life. That's not at all what he's saying to us. But this is a denial of God's goodness and of what he has made. James is talking about a selfish attitude. It's, it's, it's a heart attitude that sees ourselves at the center of it all. That our money, my money, is really what's important. My income is my happiness. My income is my joy. My income is my pleasure. My income is my comfort and my control. This is what he's getting after. And more than that even, he's saying that we're satisfying our own desires for these things first and foremost over anything else. And I wonder if there's anything left over if that's our heart attitude. Is there anything left over for God or for others or for this kingdom? And so they've increased in wealth and they've unjustly come about this wealth and they've added to their sin by using their wealth for their own self-indulgence and then James describes this self-indulgence using three phrases, doesn't he? James says, you spent your years on earthly luxury. The word luxury here in the Greek then, the original language is actually one of, of softness, right? Like a, like a soft bed. They've decided to live, we've decided to live in soft, exaggerated, sorry, extravagant luxury at the expense of others. James then goes on to say that, they, that we satisfy our every desire. This is simply giving ourselves first to the pursuit of pleasure. It makes me happy. It makes me joyful. It's a life without self-denial which soon spins wildly out of control. And then he says, we've fattened ourselves. We've fattened our lives with things and pleasures of the world. Perhaps we've blessed a few, but most importantly and overarchingly the best, it's been about me. So in keeping with this metaphor of the, of the wickedness of this and fat in their hearts, James warns of a coming day of slaughter. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not language that we normally use in our day and age today. We don't normally use the word slaughter. Slaughter is not a nice word. It's a violent word. It's a bloody word. It's, it's, it's a really not a nice thing to think about. It's a frightening picture of judgment. If this is our pursuit, if wealth and power and comfort and control is our pursuit, and this is our heart motivation, the day of slaughter is coming for us. He depicts the self-indulgent hoarders as fattened calves. And what are fattened calves used for? The slaughter. And so apart from a saving faith in Jesus Christ, this is the path that we're walking. And the third kind of wealth that they pursue is the kind that's ruthlessly acquired. So in James 5, 6, he says these words, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. So after unjustly taking and robbing from others and spending the money on, their own, on our own selves, 
James goes further and says, we've actually killed innocent people to gain more wealth and to gain more money and to gain more power, to gain more control, to gain more comfort, more, more, more. And these are the innocents. And they couldn't resist. They had no money and they had no ability to fight back. The love of money can lead to many sins. Now these are really overarching big statements to make. But it really is asking us to check our own hearts, isn't it? James is really saying to us, where is your motivation? What is your motivation? And if your motivation is simply and only to pursue money and comfort and power and control, we have to ask ourselves, where does that path lead? I want to give you one more path. Wealth can also lead to a path of many blessings. If God has blessed you with wealth, we have an opportunity to bless others like no one else. And as we've established, in relative terms to the rest of the world, the Lord has given us tremendous amount of wealth. So we have an opportunity to bless others, to bless this city that we live in, to bless the campus that we're literally on this morning, to bless our neighbors, to bless our friends, to bless one another, to bless those who minister to you or those to whom you're ministering to. So if wealth is to be a source of blessing, it must not be hoarded, unjustly gained, or selfishly spent on ourselves, but rather given, and given generously, and all that we have. And so the way I want to wrap up our time together, I want to read two verses for us. The first is from 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. And I don't often use this translation because I think it's oftentimes a little corny and a little... Most times I don't like it. However, this one I think is pretty good. This is the New Living Translation, and I don't necessarily recommend the NLT, but for this purposes here this morning, I think it works. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good, They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasures as good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. And then the last one that I want us to read here this morning is these words from Matthew 6. You probably already know where I'm going. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Hmm, may seems that James might be picking up on something he's read before, yeah? And where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So my friends... Our treasure is indeed in heaven. And the cost of that treasure is immense. 
The cost of that treasure does not come cheap and it comes with a tremendous amount of pain and sorrow. It comes with the cost of life. It comes at the cost of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ taking upon Himself our love of money, our love of power and comfort and control, and taking that upon Himself and and dying on a cross so that we could have the only kind of treasure that lasts, to have a pathway to glory, a pathway of eternity with Him forever and ever. Because He now gives us Himself, He gives us His righteousness, and He gives us His wealth to the point where He says we are heirs of the kingdom of God, heirs of the creator of the universe. And an heir is one that inherits what? A kingdom, a wealth. And what is it then that we inherit through Jesus? Life. Life with our God forever. Something that will not rot. Something that will not get eaten by moths. Something that will not corrode. But in reality, something that fills and nourishes and gives us joy above all joy. Store up treasures in heaven. Know the cost of the wealth that we have. Know our Savior Jesus Christ says to you, you are a brother, a sister, an heir to the kingdom. This is our hope. This is our comfort. This is our pathway. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks and praise that you have given us your son or given us yourself that we can have treasures in heaven and that we can have a pathway to glory because you have paved that path for us through your life and death and through your resurrection. For that, we give you tremendous praise and all glory and all honor. For you are our God and our Savior. And we love you because you first loved us. We pray all this in the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.